sure how I'm going to follow that. The, uh, you guys may not have seen it, but the Redemption Kids teachers really had it going on back over there. And, um, you know, it was good. Um, so this morning we are continuing in our Advent series where we are working through some uh, hymns of Christmas. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus and sort of where uh, it points us in Scripture and sort of what it illuminates from Scripture on this fourth Sunday of Advent, which is um, the Sunday of peace. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue on with that. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity to be present today. Thank you for the opportunity to celebrate Jesus God, even as we're in the midst of an Advent season where we're waiting, where we're remembering, where we're expecting what is to come, thank you that, God, we have the assurance and the knowledge to celebrate and rejoice even now. Holy Father, this morning as we uh, talk about this hymn, as we talk about your word, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds. God, I pray the words that I speak would be words that you would have us hear, that you would speak to our hearts and minds. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but your words are of utmost importance. And God, I pray that's what we would hear. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this time together. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Come thou long expected Jesus is without a doubt an enduring and... um, famous Advent and Christmas hymn. In the tradition and the churches that I came up in, uh, it's probably not as popular as some of the other hymns that we've dealt with in this series, but I think it's a pretty remarkable hymn nonetheless. Uh, Charles Wesley is the author of this hymn that we sang and will sing again. Um, Charles Wesley also wrote about 6,500 other hymns, which is an astounding amount Uh, Some of the hymns that he wrote that you might be familiar with, uh, in addition to this one, he wrote, And can it be that I should gain? Christ the Lord is risen today. Hark the herald angels sing. Jesus, lover of my soul. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Love divine, all loves excelling. And oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Some of the more popular ones. I saw where one person estimated that Charles Wesley's hymns appear in over 717 different hymnals across different languages, denominations, theological traditions, and cultures. If you're not familiar with Charles Wesley, he and his brother John were leaders of the early Methodist movement, uh, both in England and in the U.S. Charles is definitely more well-known, though, as the writer of hymns and as a poet. If you're into poetry and literature, uh, Charles Wesley evidently wrote more Poems than Robert Browning and William Wordsworth combined. And just as an interesting side note, Charles was a missionary here in Georgia to the Georgia colony long before the American Revolution. And there's a place on St. Simon's Island that's named after he and his brother's place of birth. That's Epworth by the Sea in St. Simon's. But what is distinctive about most of Wesley's hymns are that they display a um, comprehensive knowledge of Scripture. And on some level, across all of his hymns, I think he probably touches every area of Christian thought and theology through those songs. 
And for this hymn specifically, every phrase that Wesley wrote serves to illuminate Scripture or to point to Scripture directly in some way. It's said that Wesley wrote this hymn after reflecting on three things. One, uh, Haggai chapter 2 in the Old Testament. Two, the plight of orphans in England at the time of the writing of this hymn. And thirdly, a published prayer at the time that serves as a part of the text of this hymn. Uh, the modern version of this hymn is sometimes sung with verses that Wesley did not write. The second verse we sang this morning, Wesley did not write that, um, did not write that stanza. But here are the words that he did write in the original hymn. Let me read them to you again. The first stanza, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Second stanza. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, Raise us to thy glorious throne. It's really hard to read those without singing it, but you don't want me to sing it, so just bear with me on that one. Um, And I certainly don't want to treat this hymn as if it were scripture, but I do want to walk through those stanzas for a moment and talk about the phrases that are there and and, and, and how they illuminate scripture or point to scripture directly in some ways. In those two Uh, stanzas, there are essentially 16 separate phrases. And they all, like I said, illuminate Scripture or point to Scripture in some way. First, the phrase, come thou long expected Jesus. This phrase calls us to put ourselves in the place of an Old Testament saint or maybe a saint at the time of Jesus' birth, someone like Simeon or Anna that we'll read about in just a second from Luke chapter 2. It calls us to look at the coming of Christ with the longing expectation like God's people were doing. But recognize, we recognize that the verse actually says, or the first stanza here actually says, Come thou long expected Jesus. That's a name that the Old Testament saints obviously did not have the privilege of knowing. Those Old Testament saints longed for the coming of the the Messiah, but they didn't know that the Messiah would be Jesus. And for us, we get to sing that name back to God, come thou long expected Jesus, whereas those saints of old could only look forward to his coming. And for us, we know that Jesus has come, and during the darkness of Advent, we get to eagerly await his second return. The second phrase, born to set thy people free. Here, Wesley directly tells us what Jesus came to earth for, to be our redeemer and deliverer, came to buy his people back from their bondage to set his people free. The third phrase, from our sins and fears release us. It's a further remind us that Jesus has freed his people from their greatest enemies, Satan's sin, death, and our idols. Fourthly, let us find our rest in thee. 
Wesley is asking us to make sure that the hope of our salvation is in Jesus the Messiah alone. The only place we have to go for true refuge and rest, for peace, for the redemption from our sins, for peace with God, for peace with one another. Fifthly, Israel's strength and consolation. It's a direct pointer to Luke chapter 2 in the story of Anna and Simeon. Reminds us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those Old Old Testament messianic prophecies. The sixth phrase, hope of all the earth, thou art. Jesus is not only the redeemer of God's ancient people, Israel. He is the hope of the Gentiles of all people. Seventh phrase, dear desire of every nation. That comes directly from Haggai chapter 2. He's reminding us that Jesus the Messiah is the only one who can answer the need, the deepest need, the truest need of every land and every people. The only hope of salvation for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And finally, in the eighth phrase of the first stanza, he says, joy of every longing heart. Meaning that Jesus is the joyful answer to the heart longing for peace with God. There's a heart that longs for peace with God, for reconciliation with God, for communion to be restored with God. Jesus alone brings that peace. All of that is just the first stanza alone, and there's so much there. If we quickly move through the second stanza, the ninth phrase that we see is, born thy people to deliver. Once again, a reminder of the incarnation of God as a baby, reminder of the purpose of the incarnation was for God to free his people. The tenth phrase, born a child and yet a king presents us with one of those ironies of the Christmas story. Jesus' whose birth was lowly and obscure, obscure was and is the king. It's a direct reminder that God's ways are not our ways, that humility and service are the ways of God. The 11th statement, born to reign in us forever, starts to point us toward Jesus' kingdom, a kingdom of peace and justice, a kingdom where things are set to rights, A kingdom that's not yet fully realized, but is breaking in nonetheless. The twelfth phrase, now thy gracious kingdom bring. We just finished a series on the Lord's Prayer here at Redemption where we talked about God's kingdom and that gracious kingdom bring in the song and the Lord's Prayer. It's a petition for Jesus' reign to be realized in us and the world. The 13th phrase, by thine own eternal spirit, it's a recognition that God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who brings God's rule to bear in our lives. The 14th phrase, rule in all our hearts alone, that's a petition for Christ to be the only Lord in the lives of his people. That if Jesus came to free us from our greatest enemies, then the call is for us. For God to be the king of our hearts. The 15th phrase, by thine all-sufficient marriage. It's a recognition, by thy all-sufficient merit. It's a recognition that only Jesus' work, only Jesus' perfection, only his perfect obedience can save us. I think we all want to be the hero of our own stories at some point. But the reality of this phrase is that it points us back to Jesus alone as our hero. And finally, the last phrase Raise us to thy glorious throne. Calls on Christ by his own merit and grace 
to completely save us and to bring us into the everlasting communion with the living God. It calls on Christ to be our peace and our reconciliation. I went through all of that simply to say this. This hymn is rich with the truths of Scripture, with the story of God. And when we sing it, we are singing those truths back to God. This hymn is not meant just to make us feel good or nostalgic, even though it may do that. This hymn is not meant simply to put us in the Christmas spirit or the Advent spirit, even though it may do that as well. This hymn is meant to illuminate the Bible in such a way that we are singing to God that we want these things to be true in our lives. These truths of Scripture, we want them to be true in our lives and true in our hearts and minds in our community of faith, that we want God to rule our hearts. We want God to establish his kingdom first in us and in the world. That we want to remember what Jesus has done and that we too are longing for his kingdom to be fully realized and present on earth as we await his return. That we want God's kingdom of peace and justice to be fully realized. I'm not sure there's any point in singing this hymn unless we too want our lives to be immersed in this story of what God is doing and what he has done and what he will do. The point of singing this song is to make this song our song. That's the point of many songs, right? Most songs, to make it our song so that these things are true of us. This hymn is deep and rich with the story of God. In our remaining time together, I just sort of want to specifically dive into two of the biblical ideas that are drawn out in what Charles Wesley has written. Those are the ideas of longing for peace and the idea of peace finally realized. In Luke 2, we find this great story of two saints longing for God's Messiah. Simeon and Anna, Mary and Joseph have taken Jesus to the temple to be presented according to what was the Mosaic law. And then we find this in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 38. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. 
She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. It's an incredible story of Simeon and Anna. The, the face, they're the faces of longing and waiting. And you can hear the joy and the resolution of that waiting in the story. Simeon and Anna were waiting, longing for the Messiah, for the, Messiah, for the consolation of Israel. God's people had been waiting for years and years and years for the Messiah. They had endured so much along the way. And these two people in the temple, like I said, are the faces of that waiting and the faces of joy once that waiting is done. Fleming Rutledge says that everything in the Bible can be understood as pre-exile and post-exile. Before the Babylonians came and conquered the Hebrew nation because of their idolatry and injustice and laid waste to the temple and carried the people far away into exile in a, in a foreign land, the promises of God seemed secure. They had the land of milk and honey. They had their nation. They had their king. They had God's favor. But then they were taken into exile. And when they came home from exile in Babylon, things were not like they were before. Nothing felt sure anymore. They continued to be conquered and ruled by other nations. The promises of God seemed far off. They trusted. They knew that God would deliver. Probably didn't understand the way it was actually going to happen. And in their waiting, they felt as if they were still in exile. And the glory of before was no longer. And they were waiting. But Simeon and Anna had the privilege of finally finding the peace of God in their waiting. You can hear the relief in Simeon's voice when he says to God, you can now let me depart in peace. If Simeon can wait and hope and in faith for the coming of Jesus, we too can wait expectantly for the second coming of Messiah, knowing that God's promises are sure. Because as awesome as a thing it was for Simeon to hold Jesus as a child, we know far more about Jesus than Simeon ever could. And in Advent, we too can look forward to the second arrival of Christ with this expectant waiting and longing for Jesus while celebrating his first arrival, knowing that his first arrival promised peace and knowing that his second arrival will bring peace fully realized. As I mentioned before, Haggai chapter 2 um, was part of Wesley's inspiration for this hymn. Haggai chapter 2 happens post-exile when God's people are back in Jerusalem, once they've come home from Babylon, they're working to rebuild the temple. 
And God is promising them that as they are faithful to obey and rebuild, God will be faithful to provide all they need. Not long ago, we preached through the minor prophets here at Redemption, and Ben actually preached on Haggai chapter 2. You can go and look it up online. Uh, Incredible passage of Scripture, but let me read for you Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace declares the Lord Almighty. Verse 7 directly mentions the desire of all nations. And this is a direct pointer to Jesus and his kingdom and how things will be when God's kingdom is fully realized. God even says it there, the, the glory of the former house will not be as great as the glory of this new house that is coming. It's a direct pointer to Jesus' kingdom. It's a direct pointer to the peace that only God can provide and does provide in Jesus. It comes about after God shakes the heavens and the earth. That's what the first coming of Jesus was all about. That's what his second coming will be about as well. Do you remember Mary's song from Luke chapter 1? Over the past couple of years, this has become probably my favorite passage of Scripture. Uh, I'm going to read just a few verses, verses 51 through 55. Mary says this, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel In remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Part of what Mary, I think, is saying in this passage is that Mary understands, Mary sees that the first coming of Jesus is the dawning of the great reversal. It's the arrival of Jesus to shake the heavens and the earth. Mary expresses this longing for justice and peace that Jesus came to provide. Oftentimes when we think of the story of Jesus, when we think of the gospel, we think of it merely in terms of our own sin, our own issue, and that the story of Jesus is really about our salvation and us getting out of this place to heaven. But the gospel Mary sings about focuses on something so much bigger than that. The great reversal, the restoration of all things, the redemption of all things. Most of the song is about how the powerful, rich, and arrogant are cast down, while the hungry are satisfied, and the poor are taken care of, and the humble are lifted up. The song is not merely about personal righteousness, but about peace and justice being established throughout the entire human community. Mary's song deals with something much bigger than just her. 
or me. The decisive event in Mary's gospel is the coming of King Jesus. And that decisive event grows out of a narrative that includes the entire history of Israel. A story about individuals indeed, but also about communities and nations and kings and conquerors and judicial systems and slaves and masters and exiles and sojourners and foreigners. The powers that now rule the world are being overthrown because Jesus is showing up. God's peace is coming to earth because God's kingdom is breaking in through Jesus. Mary understood that Jesus was a threat to the evils of society and the world and the Roman Empire and the false gospel that anything of earth could truly bring peace. Only God could do that. Mary gets it. Mary gets that it was Jesus versus Caesar, and Jesus would win. And this was good news for Mary. And it was good news for the poor and oppressed, and it still is. With the birth of Jesus, God was keeping a very old promise to bring peace and justice and blessing to his people, just like he promised. Just like we saw in Haggai chapter 2. No wonder Mary sings. No wonder the church has been singing about it for thousands of years now. No wonder Charles Wesley wrote a song that is just as much about God establishing his kingdom on peace, his kingdom of peace on earth, as it is about anything else. The infant child in Mary's womb is the focal point of human history in whom all the promises of God, not just for Mary, not just for me, not just for you, but for all people everywhere, were coming true. So the call for us this morning is pretty simple. I wonder if we too can join today in Mary's song, in Charles Wesley's song, and other songs, if we can make them our own? Can we join in the singing of these songs and magnify the Lord and sing these truths back to God for what He's done for us, what He has done through Jesus, what He's continuing to do through Jesus, what He will do through Jesus at the second advent? We know that in His name all oppression shall cease, whether that's the spiritual oppression of personal sin or the structural oppression of corporate sin or the hold that our idols might have over our hearts and minds. And this is the best news in a world of bad news. It's news of peace on earth. It's news that God is bringing his kingdom of peace to bear through Jesus and he will ultimately do it again so that it's fully realized on earth. Mary understood this in ways that maybe we sometimes overlook. Charles Wesley has given us the opportunity to sing these truths back to God and make them our own. Right, so let's remember the good news of peace as we join together in singing about our Savior and longing for the reality of His peace throughout the rest of this Advent season and even today when we join together in just a few minutes to once again sing this hymn, Come thou long expected Jesus.
We're going to enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday here at Redemption. That time of response is meant to be just that, an opportunity for us to respond in various ways. One way that we have to respond is by um, what I just called us to, joining together and worshiping through singing, making this song our song, singing these songs, recognizing the truth of what God has done and will do. We also have an opportunity during this time to um, give. We often give in other ways at Redemption digitally, um, but this is a way for us to remember as well that our giving is an act of worship and a response. It's an opportunity for us to sit where we are, reflect on the truths of what God maybe is speaking to our hearts and minds this morning, and it's an opportunity for us to take communion. Every Sunday we here at Redemption take communion in order to remember what Christ has done for us and to proclaim to one another the truth of the gospel. So if you're here this morning, whether you're a part of redemption or not, I invite you to come and um, take communion, to take the bread and uh, dip it in the wine or juice and so remember the body of Christ that was uh, given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Um, I'm going to pray for us and we'll continue on with that time of response. Holy Father, thank you for this reminder from your word this morning that you have done something incredible, something that you promised you would do. God, that you've brought your kingdom of peace to bear through Jesus. God, thank you that we can celebrate the inbreaking of that kingdom during this Advent season as we remember what Jesus has done, as we look forward to what you will do again. God, even this morning in our closing time together as we take communion and sing and pray and do all these other things. God, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and minds to draw us to yourself, that the truth and the reality of what Jesus has done would be very real for us, that Jesus would be lifted high in this place, that we would be drawn to you because of Christ. God, I ask all this In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.